Psalm 16 is where we will be. As you're turning there, though, uh, part, of our, uh, part of our service is um, we will pray for those who do not currently know Jesus and those who currently um, have no way of, of, of hearing about Jesus. And so today, uh, we, we pray for the Tajik in Afghanistan. Afghanistan boasts the largest Tajik population outside of their homeland to the north in Tajikistan. Originally a tribal group, they abandoned strict organizational structure long ago. One social tradition that they practice is that of offering extraordinary hospitality. Hosting guests is considered an honor for the Tajik. The Tajiks are almost entirely Muslim, 99%, with very few known Christians. The Islamic religion is very difficult to influence. Converts to Christianity will more than likely be banished from their families. Because of this, the Tajiks, though usually warm and hospitable, are becoming more and more apprehensive toward outsiders. Uh, so let's pray for the Tajik people. Father, right now we know that this is not the only place in the world that, that your spirit is moving, that this is a, we are a part of something that is global. And so, Father, the, uh, the Tajik people in Afghanistan, God, we know, we have seen this, the statistics. There are um, 99% of them do not know you. God, would you change that? Would you bring the Tajik people to saving faith? Would you have influence that, um, that infiltrate the culture, that have a hospitable heart toward, um, toward them so that they could uh, show the one true God, so that they could show Jesus Christ? God, we know that um, in an instant you can do this. You can save the whole people group. So we ask, Father, that you would do it. We ask that you would be moving in the hearts of these men and women and children right now, Father. And we pray that, uh, that there would be one or two or many that would go to the Tajik people in Afghanistan so that they could proclaim the good news of the gospel and so that uh, the Tajik people could hear it in their own language in terms that they understand and so that they know where eternal life lies. God, would you give them the gift of grace? And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 16. It's after 15. Bad joke. Before, uh, just so we can get a a clue of where we are here. Before the foundation and creation of the world, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed in perfect union and harmony and glory with one another. But God desired to share this glory. So he creates, uh, out of the dust, human beings. He created the heavens and the earth and all that are within them, and then out of the dust of the earth, he creates man. He gave Adam and Eve all they could ever imagine or hope for or desire but as we know, it wasn't enough for them. They sinned and marred the glory of God and fractured the harmony that they had with God. And since it takes the glory of God to be in the presence of God, they had to be banished. God clothed them and sent them out of the east gate of the garden. And for all of us, our hearts break. 
We feel for them. We want them to be back. We want them to make it back. They want to be back. And in a way that we don't truly understand, we want to be back. But because of sin, there is no way back. Sin veils our eyes from navigating. We don't even know which way east is. We are dead in our sin. However, this wasn't the end of the story. God gave Adam and Eve a promise that a better Adam would one day come back, that would, he would lead them back into the garden kingdom, and all who follow this new Adam would live in perfect glory just as God had created it to be in the first place. For centuries and centuries, God's people awaited this new Adam, this offspring who would crush the serpent of sin and death, and they awaited this kingdom of perfection. Until the time that Jesus actually would come in triumphant procession through the east gate of Jerusalem, God's people were believing by faith in this Messiah that would one day come. In the meantime, God chose Abraham to be the father of it all. He led his people, uh, God led his people out of 430 years of slavery in Egypt. He sent the law with Moses to show people their sin and their utter need for this Messiah to come. And then God even, he gave them judges in the land to proclaim his justice and judgment. Sorry. Uh, But his, also his mercy that drove them back to turn back to this uh, Messiah by faith. And at this point in history, in in the time of judges, God's people were jealous that the nations around them had a king. Like, man, we want to be like the other kids. Can you give us a king? Um... And God gives them the first king of Israel. He's a man by the name of Saul. And he was to reign over God's people as a picture of the coming Messiah. All of this, all all of everything that he's done was God's way of showing more and more of this kingdom to come. Little by little, God reveals more and more of this Messiah that will come. Saul was a great king for a while until he failed to trust and obey God and God started to raise up this young man named David and that was really frustrating to Saul because David was the young punk that everyone, everyone was falling in love with. So naturally, Saul's like, I'm going to kill this guy. Oftentimes, David would end up on the run through the mountains, staying in caves to hide and be safe. And it is believed that it is around this time that David writes this psalm. Later, when David would become king, and especially after his death, God would use these writings and these prayers for all of his children to read, to show a clearer picture of our Messiah. The proper thinking of the Messiah in this psalm is just a thing of beauty. David sets out at the beginning to ask for safety and preservation, but his prayer changes in tone and focus as he goes on. And for a minute, you think he's all over the place, but when he ends, he proclaims a wonderful truth of this kingdom that will come. David, he writes in verse 11, In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is what preserved David. This is what preserved David at the threat of death. This is what preserved David through every moment of life that held sin and thoughts of death. This is what preserved the the saints of the Old Testament. And this is what preserves you and I. Because even though the Messiah has come once, we await him coming again. We still await the fullness of the kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more tears, where there will be no cancer, no more sin and death, and where there will be fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. 
Until that comes, how are we preserved? How are we to remain safe? Let's read. A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning where we can come and gather as saints, as your redeemed children. And we pray, God, that you would let your word uh, sink into our minds, that you would open the the eyes of our hearts and the eyes of our mind, that we could uh, receive what you have for us this morning. If there is any distraction in the room, if there is anything that we have that we are thinking about that will distract from your word, God, I pray that you would remove it. And if there is anything that I say, God, that distracts from your word, if there's anything I say that is, that is against you, I pray that you would keep it from my mouth. And if, if I do say it, I pray that you would help us to all forget it. Give us a proper view of who you are and of this Messiah who has come. And in so doing, would you change us? Would you transform us by degree this morning? In order for this to happen, God, it is, it is nothing but your work. So would you come? Would you change us? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How are we preserved in life? Fullness of joy. Fullness of joy entails uh, all of the truths found here in Psalm 16, uh, and there are eight of them. And so as opposed to spelling them all out here up front, we're just going to slow up around the transitions um, and we'll ease into our turns. But every one of them begins with these words, fullness of joy entails. So all eight of the points will start with fullness of joy entails. So you can just kind of fill out the rest of it. Because our question is, how are we preserved in life? The fullness of joy entails... So, starting with the first one, point one, fullness of joy entails taking refuge in God. Look at verse one. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David commands God to preserve him. It is an imperative. Another way to read this is save me, O God, because I am saved in you. 
And in order to understand the depth of this ask, remember where we are. David's hiding. It's not hide and seek place. Saul has killed thousands of men up to this point. It means nothing to him to take a life. David knows this. In fact, this psalm is titled as a mictum of David, which just means a silent prayer. It's silent because he can't pray out loud for, being, for fear of being heard, found, and slain. He's not afraid of Saul so much as what lies on the other side of death when he closes his eyes for good. So hear his cry again. Preserve me, O God, for you are the only refuge I have. In you and you alone do I take refuge. Now for us, we don't necessarily have the same problem here as David or as um, some of our brothers and sisters across the globe. And I can't imagine what this psalm means to them. But the enemy is still the same enemy. After all of our lives, prowling around like a lion, seeking someone to devour, seeking someone to tempt, to pull them away from belief in God, to pull them away from their purpose of glorifying God, to pull them away with carnal desires. When tempted to flee the pressures of life, we are called to hide ourselves in God. Only God can offer true refuge from life's dangers and from the misery of sin. God remains unshaken no matter what, which provides us with confidence in the day of trouble, in the day of sin, in the moment of sin. So where do you go for refuge from the enemy? And is it your father? Fullness of joy entails taking refuge in God. Point two. Fullness of joy entails declaring God as our sovereign Lord. Fullness of joy entails declaring God as our sovereign Lord. Look at uh, verse two. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Uh, Last week, Aaron Alvarado opened up a beautiful truth about the two uses of the word Lord here. Um, And it's it's the same found in here as it was in Psalm 8 where he did it. Um, The first is Yahweh. So I say to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. I say to the Lord, Yahweh, you are my Adonai. I say to the sovereign king of the universe, the creator of all, this, this God being, I say to you that you are mine. You are my authority, my ruler, and my only good. The good news of the gospel is only good to those who have bad news. And the bad news is that we have no good on our own. But the good news is that the Lord becomes our Lord and then becomes our highest treasure, our greatest good. Our only good is found in Him. There are plenty of things that bring good but aren't truly good in the sense of good and so we have no good apart from our Lord. Please don't try to write that down. That was... But we declare to our Lord, we declare, you are my sovereign Lord. I have no good apart from you. Fullness of joy entails Declaring God as our sovereign Lord. Point three, fullness of joy entails delighting in God's people. Fullness of joy entails delighting in God's people. Verse three, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. This is a little confusing because he starts with uh, this command to God, preserve me, and then he talks, you know, says that you are my sovereign Lord, and then he switches to people, and I'm not sure why, 
Um, it's a little confusing, and even commentaries. I thought, oh, okay, maybe the commentaries will help. They don't know either. I don't know why he does it, but he does it. But if you think about it, the saints in the land are those who aren't trying to kill him. This is the truth of other believers and the way that David views them. We're on the same team. We all desire the same preservation. And so he delights in them. And notice, why does he delight in them? Because they are saints. Not because they are friendly or kind or lovable, but because they are believers. What makes our coming together on a day like today so special is that we have the same king. We're unified under the same gospel. Just seeing each other's faces should give us delight, should fill us with delight. Because we're going to see those faces forevermore in the kingdom. Fullness of joy entails delighting in God's people. Point four. Fullness of joy entails forsaking other gods. Look at verse four. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Worshiping other gods will wound our hearts. They require offerings of blood and it is our own. When we look at images on a screen, when we overeat, when we fill in any blank, it is our blood that we offer. So our sorrows only multiply. And we all know this. In the moment of sin, it's a sorrowful moment. It only multiplies. Sin requires much of us and gives us absolutely nothing in return. Whereas our God requires all of us and gives us everything in return in himself. And so David says, I will not even take their names on my lips because what's the end result? My own blood. But entrance into this kingdom has come based on the blood of another. Fullness of joy entails forsaking other gods. Point five. Fullness of joy entails choosing to follow the one true God. Uh, verse five, it says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Of all the cups being offered to me on this table of life, I choose Yahweh. He is the one that holds my lot, which is... Uh, it's like when they would cast lots, they would uh, throw dice to see, like, what am I supposed to do here? They would throw the dice to see which way they needed to go, what they needed to do. And he says, you hold my lot. You are in charge of my destiny. You are sovereign over my destiny. And then he even continues, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Unfortunately, there are centuries between us and David, which kind of mute out his voice here. But uh, just think about what he's saying. We have to understand how valuable land was. It was the very means by which wealth and life were sustained. Without land, man had nothing going for him, which makes the call to Abraham to leave his homeland and to live in the wilderness until God gives him land, it makes that such a beautiful call. Because God called him to become nothing, that God might become everything to him. Through trust. And it was why it was scandalous that the Levitical priests got no land in their dividing of the nations. God said to them, I will be your inheritance. You trust me. And it's the same here. David says, The boundary lines of my inheritance, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Why? 
Because he had land? No. Because his inheritance was the God above the land. The God of the land. The sovereign Lord of all creation. The one who made the land. That is my beautiful inheritance. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. God hems me in by his borders to protect me. That's part of the preservation. Fullness of joy entails choosing to follow the one true God in the pleasant borders he has set up. Uh, Point seven. I skipped one in there. So we only have seven total, not eight, because I didn't put six. I don't know where six went. But, so number, number six, actually, fullness of joy entails counsel from God. Fullness of joy entails counsel from God. Uh, look at verse seven. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So this for David would have been the Mosaic laws, the Torah uh, which goes hand in hand with the boundary lines, the, the lines that have fallen for him in pleasant places. These boundary lines have fallen for me to keep me in pleasant places. The people who follow other gods, their sorrows multiply because their boundary lines are, this is my truth. And all I need is within me. Sorrows multiply. We are, in fact, finite, finite creatures. Truth can't come from within us. We don't know boundaries, and even if we did, we wouldn't stay within them. But God has come in from outside of us to give us truth, to be the truth from outside of us. He has given us pleasant boundaries with instruction, with correction, with teaching, and reproofs, all in his word. It won't tell you what job to choose, your Bible. It won't tell you who to marry. And it's not a life map. There are maps in here. But it's sufficient for salvation. And it's sufficient for every good work thereafter. It is God's counsel that leads us over and over again to these pleasant boundaries because God says in his grace and mercy, the, the law that we read in our word is not something to take away our joy but potentially, in a, it's a little joy. God says, if you stay within these bounds, there are pleasant lines for a reason. This is your inheritance. It's me. And by following this, you see me. And you see this fullness of joy. In the new covenant of Jesus, what used to be on a tablet of stone is now written on our hearts. By believing, we have been given the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And that, becomes our conscience. That is our heart in the night to instruct us. Fullness of joy entails counsel from God. And then point seven. Fullness of joy entails setting Jesus always before us. Look at verse eight. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. What does that mean? How do I set the Lord before me? It's not the same as though we would set a plate of food before us because that's a little impossible. But spiritually, we bring ourselves to the realization that God is always before us. His presence is continual, so we don't set him up anywhere. But we choose the good cup that's spread out on the table. 
All of this psalm goes together beautifully, but this is the cup on the table. This is the portion set out before David. There are many to choose from. There are many cups to drink from, i.e., there are many gods here, but I choose you. I set you before my eyes always. There are many other gods that are vying for my attention, whether it is the images on the screen or overeating or fill in any blank, but I set you before my eyes as my God, my portion. For us, we set the Lord always before us in his word, in his people in forsaking sin and pushing every other cup aside and striving to remember Jesus and, and to seek the strength that the Spirit provides. In what way? How does, how does David do this? The Lord, all, the Lord is always before David at his right hand. And this has just so many implications. It's, it's mind-blowing. But here are just three. The right hand is the hand of authority. So the king would say to, his, to the guy on his right-hand man, you are an extension of me. I submit to you um, as you submit to me. You go and do everything. Um, you go and do everything that I command you to do as king. So it's a place of authority. It's essentially you are my Adonai. But then secondly, the right hand was the battle hand. And so most people were right-handed in the kingdom at the time. Um, but it would go unprotected because on the left hand, you've got the shield that does protect. On the right hand, you just have your weapon. Unprotected but not with a right-hand man, not with the Lord at his right hand. And Psalm, <clears throat> oh, and then the third one, shade. Psalm 121, verses five and six say this. The Lord is your keeper or your preserver. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The grace of the Father to protect and to preserve, but yet not just protect, but to give comfort and protection. God doesn't even allow David to be touched by the sun. That is a right hand, never shaken kind of protection from the Father. Fullness of joy entails setting Jesus always before us. And all throughout the, the first nine verses, Psalm 16 is David's call for preservation and safety. It turns into a confession and proclamation. And because of all of this, now we have verses nine through 11. Therefore, because of everything I just mentioned, because of the, the truth that you, because of the truths that you are for me, God, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Even though Saul is on the outskirts of this camp, wherever I am, trying to kill me, my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Right there, David just had the truth in his mind. Even if I die, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. If my body leaves, you've still got me. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, this raises a point of tension. Because King David had been given a promise in 2 Samuel. The prophet Nathan came up to him and said uh, in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. So he just told him he's going to die. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David lived in this tension of, I will lie down one day with my fathers. I will suffer corruption in the grave. And one will come from my seed who will not suffer the grave, but will sit on the throne forever. And he knows this because of what God revealed to him through the prophet Nathan. He knows that his own preservation, this thing that he's praying for, body and soul through death, and then the Messiah's triumph over death, they had to be connected somehow. He's living in this tension of, I don't, I don't really know how this is going to work. That's why he asks the, the, why he commands God, preserve me. Here are the truths that I know about you. I don't know how this is going to work out. But we know. Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, gave up his life, and he was killed. And in doing so, he killed death for himself and for all who belonged to him, for all who trusted in the promise of the Old Testament and for all who trust in the person and work in our day as well. After Jesus ascended into heaven, Peter, the apostle Peter, he begins preaching the good news of the gospel. He begins going around telling everybody about this, and this is what he says in Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, here is, here's our psalm. For David says concerning him. He's talking about Jesus. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, and he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being, therefore, a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You make known to me the path of life. It's Jesus. And I, I'm really excited to get to hear David uh, explain I didn't see it. I was writing it. I knew it had to be true somehow, but it came true in the Messiah. I, everything that was kind of blurred, that was kind of a little bit not fully clear, it came clear when the Messiah did come. The whole truth of heaven, the whole glorious reality of the kingdom to come, the beauty of it all is Jesus. 
Jesus is our preservation and refuge. Jesus is our beautiful inheritance at our right hands. Therefore, our hearts are glad, our whole being rejoices, our flesh will dwell secure, and we will never be abandoned to Sheol. Why? Because he wasn't. All because of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That Jesus is the path of life. In his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. It doesn't come through working it out. This holy one that will not see uh, any corruption, that's Jesus. And then belief in Jesus, that becomes you and I. And if there is not already enough evidence of, uh, of who this psalm is about, who's at the right hand of the Father? Jesus Christ, our King. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence there is fullness of joy. It's Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that nothing in this world no other God, no other joy, no sin, no nothing can satisfy our hearts because of the sin that dominates them. But God in his grace has given us a way back into the garden, back into the kingdom, all because of Jesus. In order to properly look to this joy, to this fullness of joy, saints of Old Testament, they would look forward by faith. But for us, in order to look to this joy, you and I remember, we look back to what happened by faith. And in the meantime, until the kingdom does fully come in its fullness of this, of this age to come, the gospel truth of the joy to come gives us deep hope and conviction to live as though it will be true. Nothing in this world matters more than this salvation for any of us. And yet it is only a reality for those who would believe. And so we see that pattern. It is about first and foremost God and his glory. Everything flows from that. That is why our next step in anything is to, it, it's first to believe in the gospel and then to Go to other people. In the meantime, we repent of sin. We turn from it because we will always deal with sin. In fact, the most, uh, Martin Luther, he says that uh, maturity in the Christian life is just being more aware of your sin. But that in turn shows you the hugeness of grace. So in the meantime, we repent of sin, we turn from it to believe again in the gospel, and then we rest in it, that we may be reminded of who we are in Jesus and as a part of this family. For uh, just the sake of it, let's read it one more time together so that you can see, so that we can see Jesus. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. 
the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me Jesus. In your presence, God, there is Jesus. At your right hand sits King Jesus. So for us, in order to remember the good news of the gospel, we're going to take communion together. And the reason why we do this every week is because it's the same good news that saves us and it is the same good news that we remember to remember our purpose, our identity, who we are in Christ Jesus. And so no matter who we are, no matter if we believe or not believe or believe a little bit, maybe believe sometimes, it's the same answer for all of us. It's what we see in the life and work and person of Jesus Christ. So if you're part of the family, you're welcome to the table. If you are not yet a believer, or if you are in unrepentant sin, I ask that you would remain in your seat in this time. 1 Corinthians says you would be eating and drinking in in an unworthy manner, and I don't want that for you. If you're in unrepentant sin, you know that there is no fullness of joy in your sin. You are simply offering up your own blood. Return to your Father this morning by faith, by believing in the gospel that covers even the sin that you are sitting in right now. If you're an unbeliever, the truth is there will be no fullness of joy for you in eternity unless you are in Christ Jesus. Believe in the gospel this morning that you may sleep like David did but live forever. For all of us, this is our prayer. Father, we admit that we need this body and this blood to preserve us. Would you, by your grace, keep us safe in you that we may behold the fullness of joy in Jesus? And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So when you're ready, take your time to pray through whatever it is God has given you. Take your time to simply marvel at the gospel. Oftentimes, words, mere human words, do not fully show the truth of the gospel. And so we have a visual picture of it. That while we were still weak, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And this body and this blood that we hold symbols of is a picture of that which covers us by faith 
And it is nothing short of grace from a father. Because how do we know? How do we know that one day we will have fullness of joy because we will be in the presence of Jesus? Because on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. That not only while we were yet sinners, you saved us from the wrath to come that is absolutely deserved of of every one of us, but you showed us mercy to not let us go into that wrath but you made a way for us to to be led back into the kingdom. Not only is that true, but we get to dwell in this kingdom forever, the one that that holds fullness of joy in your presence. God, what a beautiful truth. For that, we cannot thank you enough for the, the truth that we have Uh, The the destiny that we had in our sin is no longer true of us. And then because, because of your grace, we do not deserve it. We will be part of the kingdom that is going to last forever. And we will be in the presence of Jesus, our fullness of joy.